Hello everyone and welcome to a new podcast of Johnson Insight. Juliette, Ayaz and I are going to be your moderator for this interview. Today we are receiving Scott Weiss, he is a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow. He used to work for IDEO and IRA 17. He will be joining us in a few minutes to talk about the importance of inclusivity and he will tell us what public service design is. Stay with us. Thank you, Scott, for being uh, here with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a delight. So first, we would like to know why you decided to become a designer. Was it your childhood dream? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, um, I actually went to film school and that cat catapulted me out to the entertainment industry. And I spent most of my 20s producing um, television and films and um, wasn't really feeling fulfilled in that career. Um, so I left Los Angeles to um, really look at what else I could do professionally in San Francisco and uh, ended up discovering design and it um, completely transformed how I looked at the world and how I looked at problems. But, I, but what I did realize in that sort of journey was that um, there's a lot of overlap between Kind of storytelling in the entertainment industry and storytelling and design. They're, I think they're both really anchored in this, this notion of narrative and, and powerful storytelling. So um, that's sort of how I reconciled those two things. And um, to you, what's the importance? Why is it so important to have good user experience design? Yeah, because good user experience design deeply considers the user. I think there's a lot of design out there that doesn't um, actually uh, immerse in um, a user's world. And I think that you can really distinguish between good and bad design based on how um, thoughtful the process was and how much it considered um, human beings. And um, again, a lot of good design is centered on, on good storytelling, right? And good communications. and. Um, I think it's, it's stories that are told not just um, for, uh, to stakeholders, but also to teams and how teams interact with the, with the design challenge. Um, and then when you think about how a design or uh, how a product that comes out of a design process is going to be implemented, a lot of that um, is done successfully through effective communication. You've been working in a lot of companies before working for the White House. What uh, project are you the most proud of? Yeah, um, so I don't know that I could really designate one, one project, but there's a project I worked on when I was um, at IDEO, which is a, a world-renowned design and innovation consulting firm um, that was all about reimagining the aging and dying experience in American society. So it was really using design thinking to better understand how systems influence or inform aging, the aging experience in America. So we brought together industry leaders to really explore how to improve that experience and really look at the intersection of um, design and impact, social impact. Um, so we brought in, you know, heads of the healthcare industry and heads of with the real estate industry and financial services to really acknowledge that all of their role, to acknowledge their role in um, the aging experience. And that was really profound and ended up sort of um, uh, 
creating a series of projects uh, for for IDEO and um, and and frankly personally like transformed my my view of design. Yeah, so it it inspired me to continue to do work that looked at that intersection of design and impact. Um, so um, after I left IDEO, I co-founded a social innovation consulting firm that applied the same methodologies that IDEO taught me, but in improving the conditions and experiences of disenfranchised communities. Could you talk a bit how about how moving from companies and projects like that, you came to work with the White House now? Yeah, so, you know, as I just mentioned, um, you know, I, I worked uh, with, a, with a close friend, um, a company we co-founded called Community by Design. And I think what was interesting is, you know, a few years into that endeavor, um, we started to um, really question like the, the amount of impact we were actually delivering for our stakeholders and clients. Um, not that, that we weren't proud of the work that we were doing, because we, you know, were tackling some really important problems. But the majority of our, our work was really constrained by a, a sort of consulting model, which meant that clients could really only um, engage us for about a 12 week period. And when you look at social impact work, um, it takes time. It takes a really long time to um, build trust with those stakeholders and then create the sort of conditions to be able to implement some of the strategies and, and services that will ultimately have sustainable impact on those communities. So while I was you know, navigating those existential questions about the work I was doing, I was um, introduced to someone who is now a very close friend who had gone through a full cycle of the program that I'm in. And he had convinced me rightfully that, that this was the environment for me if I really wanted to deliver meaningful impact. The federal government is the world's largest service delivery machine. We're talking about 350 plus million citizens that are engaging in countless government services. So the idea of being able to embed for a, a prolonged amount of time, like a year to two years, um, uh, made me feel like I could deliver even more impact to um, American citizens. Um, what are the main challenges challenges that you are facing as a designer for a political agency and how receptive is a historical institution like the White House um, towards innovations? Yeah, great question. So, and I just wanna caveat my answer by saying that my program isn't directly um, housed in the White House. Um, it was born out of a program in 2012 that, that um, the Obama administration created. Um, so, just wanted to kind of clarify that um, the work that I've been doing is um, uh, housed in general, the General Services Administration. It's called the Presidential Innovation Fellowship. And um, each fellow in my program is assigned a different federal agency um, to work with those agency leaders on, the, on their unique challenges. And the work I've been doing over the past year um, has been with the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, which is a 400,000 employee organization the world's largest healthcare delivery system. Um, so that in itself is just from a scale standpoint is an incredibly daunting um, machine to be able to deliver meaningful and effective design um, and design services. So I felt really lucky that um, despite the, the, the sort of 
um, the scale and the, the sort of volume of, of workforce that exists in the VA. I was, a, I was working uh, alongside really visionary partners within the VA uh, like Barbara Morton and Dr. Linda Davis and Lee Becker who had worked to kind of architect this community within the VA that was very much design led and believed in the power of human-centered design and was essentially stood up to better understand the unmet needs of veterans in the United States. So it sort of served as like, for lack of a better phrase, an insights engine. Um, so it sort of married kind of data analytics with human-centered design. So that I, I had the privilege of working with them over the past year to um, help figure out how to deliver improved services to veterans. You were saying that your work is really human-centered. Can you say that the actual crisis, the COVID crisis, pushed to more changes? 100%. I think what is so um, revealing about COVID was the sort of acknowledgement that a lot of government services are not actually delivering on the needs of citizens. I think when you look at things like the unemployment benefits application experience where people had to wait on hold for days on end, um, I think really revealed um, a sort of brokenness in our government services and systems and reminded us even more how important it was to um, uh, uh, deliver human-centered approaches or uh, towards solving some of these challenges. Um, and I think COVID actually served as an accelerant to a lot of things that had been percolating for many years that forced government to really um, reconcile a lot of these things. And you know, one of the, one of the ways that, that they were forced to think about this issue is that a lot of government agencies are quite siloed and not working together to um, meet the needs of, of American citizens. So, um, you know, when you look at uh, a low-income family in the United States that's, you know, trying to secure services from the government, they're not just working with one agency, they're working with many agencies that are ultimately interconnected. So this is a, a really exciting opportunity to help think about um, uh, government structures and how to rethink those structures. Do you think um, crisis responsiveness, for example, within the context of COVID is a key area in which more innovation is needed uh, at institutions like the White House? Or is there perhaps an even bigger priority right now in terms of innovation? Yeah, and I think it really, it's a great question. I think it really depends on, on how you define the word innovation. I think we're still, as a government, governmental community, still figuring out a shared language around innovation. And I think what I've been trying to preach <laughs> since I've been here and I, you know, I've only been in government a little over a year, which by US government standards is about 15 minutes. So not very long, but what, what I've been trying to preach is, is sort of um, innovation as a mindset um, and how innovation doesn't necessarily equal technology. And how innovation is really just about how stakeholders come together to solve problems I've been thinking a lot about uh, what does problem solving infrastructure look like for government. And, um, and ultimately, I think there's obviously the sort of near term COVID response uh, work that's being done, but how can we learn from these response efforts to create a more resilient 
government on the other side of it and a more resilient American society on the other side of it. I think where we've been given this gift almost um, in terms of forcing government stakeholders and, and communities both within government and outside of government to think differently about how they partner and collaborate on systemic social challenges. Because um, I have felt that, and this is long before COVID, that you know, government, government can't solve these problems alone. I think we need, um, we need to work in concert with the tech industry, for example, um, that could be doing a heck of a lot more to supporting um, systemic social challenges as opposed to perpetuating them. Um, I think, you know, there are, of course, other, I think financial services can be doing a better job. So I see a future where there are less barriers to achieving those goals to improve um, experiences for underserved communities. Um, so I think it really just, um, uh, you know, to your original question, gives us an opportunity to redefine what innovation actually means. Just if I could quickly follow up on that. Um, you talked about being in in government for the equivalent of 15 minutes and sort of trying to, you know, get them to innovate in, in the ways in which they're thinking about innovation. Do you find a lot of friction coming from those who've been there perhaps for a lot longer and might not necessarily have the same uh, open-mindedness towards innovation? Yeah, yeah, that that is, um, that is definitely an issue. I think that there's a lot of risk aversion that happens in government and government mindset. Um, and what's interesting is I've also seen the um, uh, opposing viewpoint. I've seen a lot of government stakeholders that are, have been for many years, but also are um, newly um, excited about um, disrupting business as usual processes and methodologies. Um, a lot of the government leaders that contract the Presidential Innovation Fellowship to help them solve these challenges are really thinking um, in a, a progressive and not a politically progressive, but a, a sort of business pro progressive manner um, to solve some of these challenges. So I think that has been a, um, a, uh, an acknowledgement kind of in, in sort of how I've been um, thinking about my experience in this program. Um, so I think you are seeing a lot of um, bureaucrats thinking differently about problem solving. That said, it's, you know, I, I still think there's um, um, a uh, oftentimes an unwillingness to um, work outside of the sort of traditional guardrails of, of government processes. It's a very, government is a very production driven sort of, has a very production driven mentality. There's not a lot of conceptualizing. Um, so I think that, um, you know, based on the previous question, I think COVID has forced us to think differently um, about problem solving. Um, according to you, when we take big institutions like the White House and big political agencies, why do you think that they need design and innovations? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's interesting too, because like you're talking about 2.5 million federal employees. So it's this huge monolithic kind of machine 
So I don't know that every single person in government needs to be thinking in this fashion. Like there's still some executional work that needs to get done. But I think structurally, I think there, um, there should be more sort of platforms for um, government stakeholders to come together to collaborate more creatively around problem solving. And um, I'm seeing more and more of that. I'm seeing things like um, uh, the Opportunity Project, which sits in um, the Department of Commerce, um, which sits in uh, the sort of census, the uh, um, department that's really using open source data to drive open innovation challenges across government. So stuff like that's really exciting. And I think we're seeing more and more um, government leaders adopt human-centered design language. You are seeing the Veterans Experience Office appointed a chief design officer to their um, depart to their division. So I think you're seeing more and more a, a greater appetite to not just think differently and creatively about how design is um, embraced in government, but also bring in talent from private industry to um, help drive change as well. How might the design changes you're advocating in American politics impact American citizen? Yeah, so um, like this is a, a, a slow burn, right? I think there's, um, there's a, an initial sort of phase zero of all of this that requires a certain level of trust building within government. I think, um, you know, I'm only in government for a two year term. There's not a lot, a lot of time. Um, and, you know, I think, um, Ayaz, you, you, you know, um, alluded to this earlier. I think despite only being here for two years, I think a lot of what we're trying to do is create that, that design infrastructure so that future fellows, future teams can actually plug in to some of the, the foundational design work that we're building and create a more, more sustainable change. Um, I think too, there's what I've observed, again, in the 15 minutes I've been here, what I've observed is um, there's a lot of reliance on government contractors, um, like the Accentures, McKinsey's, Baines, et cetera, to come in and solve, um, be responsive to, to specific challenges but that is not a necessarily sustainable approach to developing kind of that, that long-term kind of visionary change. Um, and it, frankly, it costs the taxpayers a lot of money. Um, uh, and, you know, I think it's, this is not an indictment on contractors. I think contractors do add a lot of value. Um, I just think there are certain examples where third-party contractors have made government reliant on them and I think that there's a really exciting opportunity to um, uh, ensure that those contracts and those um, relationships include things like upskilling and reskilling and ensuring that they're um, embedding in a way that, that um, helps government stakeholders drive change over time. Just again, to sort of touch upon the idea of long-term change obviously uh, elected government is operates on a termly basis. Many of the people with the most power there will be gone within four years or eight years or potentially. Um, does that have a, any sort of constraining impact on the kind of innovation strategies you're able to put in place? Only slightly. I think there's, a, in what I've observed, um, 
you know, having been here for years, is that there actually is a pretty strong separation between the legislative side of government and the policy mm-hmm. side of government and the sort of executive branch um, operation side of government. And I think there's the distinction between power and authority. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's power that's achieved through legislative channels and electoral channels, but there's also authority that exists across lots of you know decades long um, empl- government employees that actually have the capacity to create lots of change within their spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, on one hand, I totally agree that um, the sort of cycles of change, I think dis- are, are, can, can feel really disruptive. We are living through that right now, through a current, current transition, not just you know um, in 2020, but every four years, yeah. there's, there's an upheaval and there's a, 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 a transition that requires you know, transition. So it feels like government is in a co- constant state of transition. Um, so I think that kind of has a tendency to impede progress. Um, but on the other hand, I think that what's really exciting is that there's a lot more conversation about the relationship between, you know, what, how policy can actually achieve operational goals more effectively. I'm a part of a community of practice that's all around customer experience for government. So I'm actually working with um, the Office of Management Budget, which is a part of the White House, that's looking at a model, a sustainable customer experience model that can actually make uh, customer experience a core operational function of government so that it it can evolve as a a really elegant sort of service delivery machine. Um, I think that through decades of, you know, uh, systems that are, aren't evolving to support those needs. I think we are actually starting to l- look at that infrastructure and create a, a sort of cross-functional approach to um, service delivery. So that's really exciting and I think speaks to that sustainability piece um, and, and can actually really start to inspire legislators to think about how they invest in policy and draft policy that um, helps government um, uh, builds more design capabilities and customer experience capabilities across the board. Do you consider yourself as an inclusive designer? Yeah, good design um, requires um, inclusivity and, and collaboration and part- participatory practices. I, I don't think, especially when you look at government, especially when you look at systems design, I think you need to, one, needs to be as inclusive as possible in that process. and and needs to really think about power structures and power dynamics and how citizens that are not often brought to the table are not only brought to the table, but are involved in the design process as sort of a co-designer. And that's, I think, unlocking that in in government has been um, profound. Um, I think you're, you're seeing that across a lot of design agencies and especially ones that are focused on social impact. Um, but I, I've been actually observing that it's happening more and more in, in government. So yes, I, I do very much see my, I think it's, I think it's necessary in order to deliver well-designed products and services. I think you need to be, one needs to be inclusive. How did your work at the White House make you change as a person? Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Um, yeah, I think, um, it's less about the White House. And again, I just to be clear, I do not work at the White House. I um, work in a program that was born in the White House. It's now 
pretty separate from the White House. But I, you know, I think it has certainly um, given me a lot of empathy towards um, uh, the all of the constraints and challenges that a lot of um, federal employees have to navigate in order to deliver impact and meaningful change. Um, and it has also, you know, awakened me to all of the amazing work that's happening across government and frankly, help me sort of understand, you know, how um, the White House can, especially on the Office of Management and Budget that sets budget and manage management priorities across government can really be that, that sort of um, powerful um, engine of change for government um, in, in how their sort of policies are communicated across government and prioritized. It's interesting, every four years, there's what's called a, pre a president's management agenda. And that is all, it's sort of a, a doctrine that comes out every four years that's all about a set of um, cross-agency priority goals towards government modernization. That was really um, uh, inspiring for me that, that there's this um, conversation that takes place every you know few years or so around um, you know all the levers that can be pulled to help government become more innovative and modern. So you know that that um, customer experience work I, I was sharing with you earlier that was part of a cross agency priority goal that sat under the president's management agenda that was all around you know cross agency leaders coming together to drive towards a more mature customer experience. Um, practice. Um, and then there's one that's all around sort of looking at um, low value work versus high value work and how technology can, can really um, help us uh, distinguish between those things. I think there are 14 of them, actually. So for any um, listeners out there, audiences of this podcast, I, there's like, there's a lot of really interesting um, documentation of this work. Um, and, and uh, honestly, I, I think to your question, uh, I think it has reinforced my values in um, uh, uh, really doing as much as I can as a designer to help improve um, uh, um, American society and help bring underserved communities to the table in terms of design. And I think my the program that I'm in is comprised of very service-minded, passionate um, folks who came from private industry that are raising their hands to pursue careers in public service, um, whether it's for two years or beyond. Um, there's a there's a, a big community of folks that have been in my program that are have gone on to um, take very senior level positions in government. So the current, for example, the the, the current chief technology officer of the VA. Um, started as a presidential innovation fellow. So I think there's there's some really exciting bridges that are being um, formed um, between private industry and, pu and public sector that's driving some really exciting change. Um, I think just as a, a concluding question, uh, yeah. in, a, in just a few words, what do you think are some of the most important values and skills for a young person looking to begin a career in design and innovation today? Yeah, I have two, two values that if I, I don't have any tattoos, but if I ever get them, I would tattoo these words onto my body, um, empathy 
being the main one. Um, I think that design thinking and human-centered design process is engineered to shatter assumptions mm -hmm. and biases because it forces uh, one to go out into the world and try to understand um, the experiences of stakeholders that you are trying to design for. And that manifests through interviewing, through um, actually immersing and, and um, you know, say, if, say their job is um, uh, riding a bus, a public, uh, public bus, it's, it's actually doing that yourself. And, um, you know, really understanding that, that sort of um, system that, that user is operating within. Other value that actually IDEO taught me that I think was somewhere inside of me the whole time, but um, optimism is a huge one. And optimism, as I try to, um, you know, preach is not about happiness. I think optimism is about the belief that a solution is possible to even some of the most daunting challenges. Um, and that if you really embrace, um, rigorously embrace this process that um, meaningful change can happen. And if you are to use, um, you know, words that have been brought up before in this interview, if you are inclusive and you are participatory um, and inclusive also means what, you know, the team that you are working with to solve these challenges, it shouldn't just be five um, upper middle class uh, white guys working on a, on a project. It should be a cross section of um, ethnicities, races, backgrounds coming together to sort of cross pollinate those uh, perspectives to solve the cha those challenges that they're working on. Thank you so much, Scott, for your time, for answering all those questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. And, and please let me know if you have additional questions or want to continue the conversation. Thanks for staying with us. And thanks also to Scott again for sharing his knowledge. We hope that Scott's explanations will push you to be more inclusive and will inspire you. We will see you soon for another podcast. Indeed, the interview of Ben Tamblin, Inclusive Director at Microsoft, is coming soon.